May 14, 2018, Marcus David Peters was on the side of Interstate 95, naked and suffering from a mental health crisis when he was fatally shot by a Richmond police officer. In 2019, Mayor LeVar Stoney replaced Police Chief Alfred Durham with William C. Smith. And in this last year, because Chief Smith has maintained the Stoney administration's legacy of lack of responses to meetings, information requests, and just ignoring emails, most data and transparency advocates are reporting that not much has changed in Richmond, Virginia. This week, before we are inundated with praising law enforcement for National Police Week, I wanted to remind Richmond about what we are maintaining while we resist admitting that our policing needs a transformational overtaking that's not just transparent, but has the oversight by those that employ the police and pay their salaries. We the people. So I'm remixing Race Capital's very first episode from 2018, and this story is why our platform exists, to share stories of Richmonders like Marcus David Peters, the ones that he and we truly deserve. We begin the episode with the June 11th, 2018 City Council meeting, where Marcus David Peters' sister, Princess Blanding, and two Justice and Reformation organizers, Rebecca Keel and Joseph Rogers, spoke out. Then we take it back to the original race capital interview of July 2018 and reflect what it was like back then and very much today, just trying to get one real question answered from Mayor LeVar Stoney, which is, when it comes to policing people, do Richmond Black Lives Matter? Stay tuned. My name is Princess Blaney, very proud sister of Marcus David Mark Peters. I come before you to express my dismay, my disgust, and my disappointment in the decision of a Richmond police officer that a Richmond police officer made to take the life of my brother Marcus Peters, who was clearly unarmed and in need of help. Furthermore, my disappointment continues at the higher levels as instead of taking responsibility and stating that you all messed up and extended your sincere condolences to my family, Richmond Police Department was insincere, judgmental, and prepared to defend your officer without releasing complete information to the public. Richmond Police Department had the audacity to attempt to take one moment of distress in my brother's life where he was clearly calling out for help and then attempted to take that moment and make it define and override all of the positive things that my brother has done and all of his achievements. The following statement was made about the mental health training that uh, Richmond police officers received. I looked at what it would take to become a psychologist, a psychiatrist, mental health counsel, five to eight years of training. Our police department gives our officers 40, 40 hours, five to eight years, and we get 40 hours and people expect it, and I'm not even talking about this situation, ladies and gentlemen. People expect us to go out there and get it right. Well, yes, we absolutely expect you to get it right when your officers have the power to take a person's life. Richmond Police Department, if 40 hours is not enough training, 
is not enough time, then it is your responsibility to ensure that officers know their limitations and are prepared to call upon others with better training and skills needed to address people experiencing a mental health crisis. Richmond Police Department should not be allowed to use the excuse of lack of training to justify the de decision to end someone's life. Richmond Police Department attempted to paint my brother as a superhuman being who was able to withstand being hit by a vehicle, then tased with the full amount of voltage intended to be delivered. Richmond Police Department staff watched the full video in slow motion along with my uncle and I, and it was clearly stated that Marcus was not hit by a vehicle, he was swiped by a vehicle. Marcus was tased, but both of the electrodes did not penetrate his body as evidenced by the autopsy. However, Richmond Police Department took pride in painting a negative, false image of my brother. Shame on you, Richmond. If what you have done thus far is what you call being transparent, the community and I will pass on what you have to offer because there are still so many unanswered questions. Richmond Police Department, if you really want to be transparent, then my family and I supporting organizations in the community demanding meeting with you on our terms at a time, place, and location of our choosing because you will need to answer the following questions. What does Richmond Police Department know about what took place at the Jefferson Hotel? I mean, Marcus was able to safely drive home from his teaching job in Essex, Virginia, to his home in Henrico. Marcus was then able to safely drive from home to the Jefferson Hotel. Marcus parked his car in front of the Jefferson Hotel. He did not ride up on the sidewalk. He did not drive through the building. Marcus then walked in the hotel and he waved at someone. And then the footage is very scattered with no timestamp and Marcus appearing and disappearing. What happened after Marcus arrived at the hotel? Was there some nefarious actions uh, taken towards him there? Has Richmond Police Department been investigating these questions? What investigation has Richmond Police Department done to learn why it took the staff at the Jefferson over two hours to call the police after Marcus left? And why weren't any of his emergency contacts called? What has Richmond Police Department done uh, to work with other jurisdictions to obtain relevant footage of Marcus driving from his teaching job to his home and from his home to the Jefferson Hotel. Richmond Police Department should know that acquiring and releasing this information is extremely important in helping the community understand what took place and the family would like answers as to what you have done to get this information. Why did you stop showing that body camera footage after a state trooper told the officer the shop Marcus to put his gun away and return to his vehicle? I mean, I'm sure that body camera is not smart enough to take the commands of a state trooper, as we do not see the officer bring his hand up to his body camera to deactivate it. These are all serious holes in the family and community's knowledge about what happened to Marcus both before and after he was killed by a Richmond police officer. And until we get answers to these questions from Richmond Police Department, we will never break what you have done thus far as being anything close to transparent. Transparency means answering these questions. Transparency means you will acknowledge to the public that Marcus was not hit by a car, but rather swiped, and that only one of the two electrodes penetrated his body. Transparency means being honest and not trying to portray Marcus as some superhuman being that was a deadly threat to your officer. Why not admit that when you mess up and you make a mistake that you're wrong? I strongly believe that when pointed out problems, it is equally important to offer solutions. So here are our demands that we believe will yield solutions moving forward. These demands also define what justice for Marcus looks like to us and how we need to go forward with reformation of the Richmond Police Department and, uh, excuse me, 
and policing culture in general to ensure that no family ever has to suffer this tragedy again. Richmond Police Department, you must release publicly the current Richmond Police Department's policies on training officers in crisis intervention and mental health stabilization, the 40-hour training that you referred to, as well as the specific details of the training. Richmond Police Department must then ask experts in crisis intervention to assess the Richmond Police Department's crisis intervention policy and training practices. Richmond Police Department, you must also release the conclusion of this assessment to the family and public. The Richmond Police Department, together with members of my family, members of the community, limited elected officials and law and policy makers, must work together to create a Marcus Alert to be implemented in the city of Richmond. When a community member is experiencing a mental health crisis, others in the community will know to use this alert to notify a crisis management team comprised of special, uh, specialized mental health and crisis intervention first responders who will not be members of the police department or law enforcement officers. The crisis management team's primary objective will be to stabilize the situation in a non-lethal manner. This alert will also have the uh, capability to advise law enforcement that they are requested to be present on the scene and to stand by to assist the crisis management team in a possible mental health crisis and that the person is unarmed. Any respondent officer, uh, excuse me, any respondent law enforcement officer will employ, if necessary, non-lethal tools such as a net gun, pepper spray, a baton, a taser, and prepare to use hands-on tactics if a member of the crisis management team requests law enforcement assistance. Our goal with this demand is to develop a model that can be replicated across the country where it is no longer expected that police officers will be asked to do the job of trained mental health professionals. The community does not accept that police are the proper people to keep the community safe during a mental health crisis, including the person experiencing the crisis and others nearby. The team of community members and limited elected officials who work on the market alert will identify Richmond Police Department funds that can be reallocated to fund the creation of this new non-law enforcement crisis management team of mental health first responders that will be housed outside of Richmond Police Department. The experts that assess Richmond Police Department's current policy will also recommend protocols for the Richmond Police Department when engaging with crisis management teams. If you think that Richmond Police Department does not have the skills or training to get it right when your officers respond to a mental health crisis, you must give your full cooperation and support in creating the system of non-law enforcement first responders who will have those skills and training. The officer that killed Marcus needs to be held accountable for his actions as well. Richmond Police Department must turn over this investigation to the Commonwealth of Virginia with the recommendation that the officer be judged in a court of law regarding whether his decision to shoot my unarmed brother was or was not legally justified. This officer served as judge, jury, and executioner of my brother. We think he must be made to defend his actions in a court of law, an opportunity that he took away from my brother. Moreover, because the officer did not fulfill his duties to protect and serve the community as the only one that he seemed to have protected was himself, you must recognize failure of your officer and ensure that he does not continue to as a member of the Richmond Police Department. Richmond Police Department, since you now know what my family and the community believes real transparency looks like, you must make a sincere apology to my family for the death of my brother without being insensitive. 
without being judgmental and without trying to defend your officer and justifying his actions before you have fully answered all of the questions that remain regarding what happened to my brother the day he was killed. Again, my brother Marcus David Peters, he needed help, not death. The next speaker is Joseph Rogers. Good evening, President Hilbert, Vice President Newbill, and members of council. My name is Joseph Rogers, and I stand here today in support of the family of Marcus David Peter. Our city's residents, workers, and visitors have likely or will likely experience events of traumatic nature in their lives. There are facts of living that are not unique to our city, as certain studies will show that an estimated 70% of adults in the country have experienced a traumatic event, nearly 20% of them going on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Our city's residents, workers, and visitors have likely or will likely experience mental health issues, as estimates claim 43.8 million Americans experience some form of mental illness in a given year. Several major disorders developing in the late teens to early 20s for men in the U.S. Our city's residents, visitors, and workers have or likely will experience substance abuse disorders as have more than 20 million Americans, living in, leading to an overall decrease in the life expectancy for this country in, two, in 2016 and as the declaration of a public health emergency the following year. I mention all of these things because there has been speculation as to why an accomplished graduate and high school teacher such as Marcus Peters would be in a state that he was in on May 14th. And but one thing was clear, Marcus was in crisis. And our police department has stated that it provides crisis intervention tra training for its officers. Actions taken after that officer identified a mental health situation still resulted in Marcus being shot twice in the abdomen. If we accept this fact that the training provided was implemented as intended, then why did the officer find himself in a position to use lethal force in fear of his life? Was that training not sufficient to instruct him on how to address, address a situation like this? How many other officers will be required to use lethal force as a result? What kind of trauma are we willing to put them through? If we accept as fact that this training is supposed to minimize harm and the loss of life and to de-escalate a situation with a person in crisis, then why was Marcus Peters not sitting in his class with his students this morning? Why will he never do so again? How many of our city's residents, workers, and visitors already at a statistically high risk will find themselves in a similar situation to Marcus? How many of them are we willing to accept to have the same outcome? It is because of these reasons that Marcus's family public release of the details of 40 hours of crisis intervention training program implemented by our police department. We demand that the training be reviewed by independent professionals and evaluate the program's effectiveness and ensure that such training will result in help, not death. Furthermore, we demand the creation and implementation of, as we heard earlier, a Marcus Alert that should be a ready signal for all first responders when encountering persons in crisis and ensure that proper procedures and skilled personnel with specialized training are called to the scene. We make these demands because they are reasonable. We make these demands because they are right. And we make these demands because they are just. And we hope that you, President Gilbert, and members of council will support us in, as we continue to openly call for these demands going forward. Thank you. The next speaker is Rebecca Keel. Hello. Council President Hilbert, Vice President Newville, 
My name is Rebecca Keel, and I speak as a community organizer, advocate for justice and reformation, and as a conflict resolution and restorative justice facilitator. Our demand number three, a sincere apology from Chief of Police Alfred Durham for the preventable death of Marcus David Peters. As someone who works in restorative justice and conflict resolution, I share this wisdom. One must admit harm when harm is done. And that is truly how we as a society and as we as a city begin our healing. Demand number four, enactment of a democratically elected civilian review board with subpoena power. In a recent article in the Richmond Times Dispatch by Michael Paul Williams, it stated, if the Richmond Police Department continues to reject transparency, it will sacrifice trust. There is a current police accountability coalition between Southerners on New Ground, New Virginia Majority, the Legal Aid Justice Center, Criminal Rights and Racial Justice Program, and the Advancement Project to further this campaign, especially in the light of the death of Marcus David Peters. The community has been asking for more transparency from the Richmond Police Department, and it must comply if it wants community trust. Demand number five, Chief Alfred Durham and Mayor LeVar Stoney to attend a community meeting held by the community for the community to discuss RPD's policies, procedures, and accountability. The date of this will be June 30th, location at Second Baptist Church. Spoiler alert. Mayor Stoney was a no-show. Two years later, Stoney has never met with the community. We also ask that you, Council President Hilbert, Vice President Newville, and other members of council to join us in support for this movement for justice and reformation. Thank you. All right. Um, so this is Phrase Capital. Thank you guys so much for being a part of my very first show, y'all. So why don't we go ahead and get started by going around the room? Oh, me. I'm first. All right. So I'm Jesse Perry. I'm one of the co-founders of RV Dirt. So we just do a lot of live tweeting, a lot of government meetings. Oh, thank you so much just for being here. I am Dr. Liz Costin, and I am a professor in the Department of Sociology at VCU. Okay, next. Uh, my name is Ulysses. I'm the vice chair of the uh, Young Democratic Socialists of America at VCU. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. I invited everybody here because last night was July 17th, and uh, we really wanted to refer back to the community meeting that was held, and I did not get a chance to be there. So I invited some really amazing folks that I saw on the live feed that was on Facebook at the Justice and Reformation for Marcus David Peters. Please check that Facebook post out and invited them in to come and talk about that community meeting to get everybody caught up. So I know, Jess, that you go to these things. So kind of set up, what are these meetings usually like? Yeah, so this is the second year that he's done it. He did it originally um, in 2017. It was actually one of his campaign promises to have office hours in every single district in the city at least once a year. So normally when they, they have their own little agenda, little piece of paper, but the ideal goal is just to have anybody ask any question and he likes to have everybody on hand. So if it's the director of public works or the director of public utilities or if it's chief, police chief Durham, whoever it is, there's usually about 20 people or so from the city. And then there's also police that are there. And it, it's always having somebody on hand to answer a question. So it's usually a pretty small setting. Uh, the ones I've been to this year, I went to the one in the 2nd District, the 8th District, 
the ninth district, and now this one was the fifth district. So every council person's usually there also. Sometimes you'll get the school board member, but they this year they've had three topics. The first one is always infrastructure. The second one is public education. The third one's always public safety. And honestly, it always comes right after his budget. And so he starts off every single one with the same pitch. Sometimes they're changed a little bit for each district, but he always talks about what are the things he's doing in that for the budget. And then he just opens it up for anybody to ask a question. So that's ideally what happens, at least ideal for his world, I guess. But in theory, anybody can show up to any meeting and ask whatever question they really want to ask and get it off their chest. So in the ones I've been to in the second, the eighth, and the ninth district, I would say probably about 20 to 30 people in each of those. Um, the ninth district was the most because they had food. So there was probably closer to 50 people in that one. Um, I've asked around the one the fifth district was last night, and a typical meeting for them is around 30 to 40 people which is a pretty good turnout for one of these meetings. Uh, then you also had probably about the 20 people from the city. So there were times where somebody did a head count where there was close to 140 people at this meeting. Last night. Last night. And that's including the city people and everybody that was there. So it was a very different type of meeting. Very packed. Very much yeah. packed. So, and just to kind of clarify that the organizers were there for Marcus David Peters. And the reason that they were there was because... The mayor and the mayor's office has yet to meet with the family and the organizers. So after the June 30th community meeting that happened for the organizers to really and that they invited the mayor, they invited Chief Durham, they did not show up. So at that meeting, they said very directly that they will then go to them. They will go to the mayor's um, these office hours. And that was the plan. So. The idea that um, this was not a surprise for folks. It shouldn't have been a big throw off or anything like that. If anyone's been paying attention. It was advertised on Facebook. You know, I've tweeted about it. I know I've tagged him in it. Mayor Sony that is in it. Everybody's been tagged. Right. Right. So what is usually the feel of, of these meetings? <laughs> Laughter. Not from last night. <laughs> not, not what happened last night. Okay. Yeah. So normally people are there to talk about like, like drainage issues. They're pretty much like people are frustrated but they're at their wits end because they just don't know who else to talk to but everybody's super friendly on the city side super helpful um last night was interesting because uh first of all it was kind of just tense i think partially because it was crowded um and then of course everybody knew there's kind of the elephant in the room of like what's gonna happen who's gonna say what when's it gonna happen like what's the plan here everybody was kind of just on the edge of their seat i think and on top of it uh, Mayor Stoney was just snarky from question one. Hmm. You know, uh, he sometimes gets that way, I've noticed, where he'll kind of have those quick little quips where he tries to kind of jab, get a jab in sometimes and stand up for himself, I guess, is maybe how he sees it. Mm -hmm. But uh, usually it happens when people keep asking the same questions over and over, or especially if those questions are things that are like beyond his control. So a good example was during the, the meals tax when he was having all these district meetings. And people kept asking, like, well, why can't we tax plastic bags? And he's like, but the state, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. So from the question one, you know, somebody made a comment. And it, it was interesting because in this situation also, the, the people in the meeting mm -hmm. weren't just taking his answers. They kept asking follow-ups, which so was not normal. Liz and Ulysses, have you guys ever been to one of these meetings before? I have not. This is my first one. Okay. All right, Liz. I haven't been to the office hours. I've been to other town halls with Chief Durham, though. Okay. I was woke up this morning. It was 5 a.m. I was like, I got to catch up about what happened with the organizers and Marcus David Peters. And I was watching this feed. And I mean, 
from moment to moment was just like mouth dropping and just the questions were amazing. Princess Blanding, Marcus David, Peter's sister, really had those follow-up questions of standing her ground about what it was important in the demands. And one piece that I saw Liz jump up and, and ask a question. So the question that I asked was related to why the incident involving the shooting of Marcus David Peters didn't appear in any of the use of force reports that were released by the Richmond Police Department. Every month they publicly release data on use of force reports. Well, if you go back and you look at the line-by-line line incident reports, all the way dating back to the beginning of 2017, there are no instances in which firearms are used against citizens. And given the size of the Richmond Police Department and the fact that Police departments generally really tout the fact that, hey, we didn't use firearms at all against any citizens. There were no officer-involved shootings. That just doesn't really happen in a city of the size the of size. Richmond. Right. And so I went back and I tried to verify this, and I found numerous instances in which there were officer-involved shootings that weren't contained in the data. And some of those also involved things like the subject being tased first. Mm. Well, the taser incident related to that shooting, because it's all one incident, also doesn't appear in that data. Wow. And so any incident involving a firearm was systematically omitted from the publicly released data. So you say it's systematically omitted. How do we know that it was omitted and that that information was there and somebody had to purposely take it out? How how can we say that? So at the if you look at the... Pol- the publicly released data, there's actually a small cross-tabulation table that shows where the firearm incidents, how many occurred. Mm -hmm. That doesn't appear until February 2018 in the data. Wow. But you can't produce a table like that from data if it's not there in the data. And they're there, right. And you said that you mentioned before um, the show that there was a form that contains these certain questions that they have to fill out. Yeah, so every time there is a use of force that goes beyond what is departmentally approved, officers are supposed to submit a use of force report. Okay. This includes if they strike a subject, if they use a firearm, if they use a baton, etc. And so it's the same form whether you use a firearm or whether you strike someone. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that somehow only the firearm reports are contained elsewhere when all of the uses of force are reported on the same form really also doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see why maybe a department would want to look at that separately, but they should all be in the same place because they came from the same form. They came from the same form. Uh, if I can ask a question, um, you said that the officers have like will report their usage of force. Is it solely up to the officers at the incident to report their use of force? So it's all self-reported by officers, and that's also something that's problematic. Um, There are lots of exclusions. So if they use a departmentally approved technique, um, for example, a departmentally approved takedown, they wouldn't have to fill out a use of force report. Wow. Wow. So uh, a departmentally approved takedown could still look like someone being, you know, you know, assaulted or, you know, taken to the ground somehow. But if it's done the right way, sorry, if it's done the right way, then... uh, then it doesn't have to be reported? They're technically also supposed to to report anything that results in injury or if there's complaint of injury. But again, these are self-report data. So we are relying on the honesty of officers to go out, 
go after the, the incident occurs and fill out that report. Uh -huh. And also for somebody to enter that data correctly into the system and then for that data get to go from the police department systems to their public website. And clearly there's something Missing. happening in that process where the public isn't getting all the information. And, and we know that very clearly by just looking at the one event of Marcus David Peters that is still not reported. Is that what you were saying? Yes, along with numerous other events, right. um, of off specifically of officer-involved shootings. But I'm sure that there's incidents missing using tasers, canine, mm -hmm. batons, mm -hmm. other types of things. So when you brought that up at the meeting last night, what was the response? Chief Durham's response was that it was an oversight, that they only found out that that information was missing that day, and that the information on the website was being updated. So that day, the same day that happened to be a community meeting, they just so happened to realize that there was a major oversight in data reporting publicly. Yes, they just happened to notice that. I'm sure that they saw, um, take them down RVA, I saw had retweeted something about those incidents missing from the data. So somebody, somebody in the public had also caught this um, aside from me. And the police chief became aware of it and that instantly way. was like, there's a community meeting tonight. I better go <laughs> fix this problem. Remember, he was very adamant. It wasn't just like this is being updated. This is this has been done. Right. We saw this today and we fixed it today. Today. I mean, he you guys have got to watch this. The replay of the live feed. It was just like he was adamant. Like, I know what they showed me. I know what they showed me. And to the point of like he asked you to look it up. Right. Yes, and I looked it up, and I went to the May report, which should have contained the firearm incident, and it wasn't there. Jesse found out later that it's because they had only updated the most recent June report, but that means that all of the 2017 data is incorrect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all of the all yeah, so of everyone, the reports. It's it's each one's listed by month, and if you go, because I did the same exact thing, because I'm like, well, this happened in May. I'm gonna look at May data. Click, not there. And so then I'm clicking on to June. And first of all, like, it took a minute to even find it on the website. Right. It's not. So tell everybody where on the website that they possibly maybe could. It's like deep down in there. So if you go to the Richmond Police Department main page, you have to go way over to the left-hand side, scroll about two-thirds of the way down the page, and it'll say IAD statistics. That'll bring you to a page that has their complaint data um, and their use of force data that's publicly available. And they're, they've got every month in 2018 separately, and they also have a comp compilation of 2017's data. But okay. the only one that, is, that was updated yesterday was the <laughs> June 2018, none of the prior data. So the majority of the publicly available data on their website still omits those cases. Is inaccurate. Yes. Yes. Wow. But trust the process, though. Well, why wouldn't we? We trust the cops, right? Oh. Speaking of trusting the cops, Ulysses, I, again, why I had to have these certain people on the show because there was this question by this young person that just made me, I mean, just start screaming the profanity into my phone and, <laughs> and texting Jesse at 6 a.m. Like, what happened at this meeting last night? So, yeah, what, Ulysses, tell me about, like, tell me a little bit about your experience last night and then what made you even come to asking that question? Um, so, the, the, the reason I asked that question was because 
Um, well, tell everybody first, what was your question that you asked? So I asked the chief of police if he believed that there was a systematic problem of state-sanctioned violence against black and brown people in this country, not specifically in Richmond, but there was an issue of, uh, you know, black and brown people getting murdered in this country. Like, there was an issue of violence against against us. Do you think, like, do you, do you own up to the fact that there's a genuine problem in this country where we have black and brown people getting literally murdered in the streets by our police officers? Like, y'all accept that as a fact? Yes or no? And he flat out said no. And he did not. He didn't. He didn't begin to like open up and frame it and say well or you know well actually or maybe he said no with no hesitation. No, it came out. Didn't quick. skip a beat. Like <laughs> it was the craziest. Well, in his tone, I don't know if anybody else feels like the way that he did it was like no. Like he was shocked. Like why would anybody ever? Like he was just so taken <laughs> aback. Well, he was taken aback, and then he got like angry. Um. Well, first after after I asked that, and he said no. Like the entire room just was like. Uproar. Yeah, it was uproar. And then after that, he stepped away from the podium and you know began to like approach me, like you know walking towards uh, the middle of the room to get closer to me and like lean in and make that eye contact and saying no like this and that there's not a problem i he, i think he said i want to treat people fairly or something along those lines you're listening to race capital with chelsea higgs wise on wrir lp 97.3 fm richmond independent radio stay tuned as we continue our two-year anniversary of justice and reformation for marcus david peters We see the data is wrong publicly. We ask the the very what you think is a simple question, like, is there a systematic issue? I think when people say, you know, can we trust the process? I think it's important to look at what the process is. The process is the process is what's killing people. You know, I say this all the time, and this may just be my own radical opinion, but I don't think you need a pistol to pull somebody over in traffic. I don't think you need a gun to respond to somebody very clearly in a mental health crisis. That, you know, he he posed absolutely no threat to that police officer. And particularly if he felt he was in such a dangerous situation, he should have removed himself rather than taking it upon himself to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. It's like the process is what's is, is what's killing people. So you're going to say the pro, like the people engaged in this process are then going to take that process and then make it right. We've seen that that does not happen. There have been like virtually no acquittals in any of these instances of police violence in this country. For, like the person who, uh, the cop who murdered, or yeah, the police officer who murdered Eric Garner, there was no repercussions for anybody except for the person who filmed that instance. And it, it's ridiculous. I think something like for people who haven't maybe not seen this video uh, of, of the incident that happened, I think something that's really important to note is when the incident starts, Marcus David Peters is naked. He's getting out of a car, and you can hear the police officer blatantly state, this person's in a mental health crisis. And instead of putting their gun away, they continue to hold the gun and also take out a taser. And as he goes into the street, he he now has two weapons in his hands at somebody who he's already identified as having a mental health crisis. And so when you think about what the process is, I think, in Chelsea, and people way more knowledgeable of the process than I could talk about it, but, you know, when when you talk about Something in a mental health crisis, step one of the process is always, well, call the cops. That's who needs to help. Right. And then their process is weapons. Right. That video and what happened in that video is already being sold as it was appropriate from a cop standpoint because that 
nobody has stepped up and said anything because now we have to wait for the investigation, which was a great point that someone else brought up last night of, well, what happens if the investigation comes back that everything happened within protocol? Does that mean that there is no change? Even though we just heard the chief Durham say that there is no systemic racism going on in our country. I think that's the biggest problem with saying that we have to wait until this investigation ends to start discussing procedure and protocol is because that suggests that if this was within procedure and protocol, we don't have to review procedure and protocol. And the real issue is that incidents like this happen routinely. And there are other people who may be injured, may be killed because of these specific protocols and procedures. And it doesn't rely on the outcome of one case for us to say, maybe those protocols need to be revised. Right. Right. So what are you all's motivation in this? Right. Because I talk a little bit about, I want to ask who you are, what you do, but why are you involved in this? And like, why are you taking your time? Because I am involved as an organizer, as a clinician, I'm a mental health person. So just as Jesper was saying earlier, I can identify that situation where he was naked on the side of 95 and approaching that police officer with a verbal threat, how he still was not a threat to that officer because of the resources that that officer had um, and the, the steps and the things that he could have done in that moment to de-escalate the situation that he didn't and said he had two weapons in his hand. So I can see right there my motivation because I work in the mental health field and having a naked person run at me is not uncommon in my job. It actually, for many years, working in the community on the side of the road, I had people threaten my life, and, but I never had a firearm. So that's my motivation with doing this. Ulysses, can I start with you? Can I ask, what, what motivates you to be here? Why did you show up last night? So I think a lot of the reason I do the things I do in terms of organizing and trying to make a difference comes from my background. I'm biracial, but I look, I, you know, I pass as white. So in my life, I've seen the difference in the way that my family members have been treated and the way other black people have been treated versus the way I'm treated. And one of the most scary things I've seen in my own personal life is uh, seeing people who don't look at me as, you know, passing and seeing the difference in just the way people look at you, but also seeing the difference in, like, when you tell somebody who may have some, uh, I guess, you know, sus opinions on, you know, people of color and such, a, a switch goes off, and you can see the difference in the way someone looks at you, and it's something very subtle that I, I don't think many people see who aren't, who can't, uh, who aren't, I guess, on both sides of, I guess, you know, being... Uh, white versus being non-white and you know going to my family like my dad was the last person to live on the on the uh, same property of which my ancestors were slaves on like you can look in the overgrown shrubs and see the stone fences that my ancestors have built and my uncle still works for the uh for mr thompson the person who owns the land the entirety of their wealth comes from the exploitation of black and brown people so that's my motivation i guess and where are you from uh, i'm from virginia like I, I grew up in northern virginia but that was out in marshall where my dad lived yeah, I go to uh, VCU. I'm the vice chair of the VCU Young Democratic Socialists of America. And you're just showing up because you heard Marcus's story and you were motivated. With- yeah, I mean, uh, he was. I mean, he was. He was lynched. Like how? Like I don't understand. Like why we should mince words about it. People say there was a police involved shooting or anything like that. Like we need to be clear. This man was murdered. This man was killed by the state. This is happening everywhere. Like I don't know how this isn't everyone's priority. 
or you know at least not on everyone's radar yeah no definitely and you just said some really powerful words that he was lynched and i i you know people have told me like like i I remember sending out an email for the uh ydsa when this first started happening uh trying to plug one of the meetings that the organizers were putting together and someone replied to me saying i don't know why you chose the word lynched he wasn't lynched he was shot and you know i i think you know while maybe the technical definition of lynching, maybe somebody, you know, being strung up, it's it's the same thing happening today as was happening with Emmett Till, as was happening with all these other people back in the day. The means may be different, but the root causes of it and the reasons it's ha- reasons why it's happening are the same. So that's that's why I use that word, and that's why I think we should be clear with that word and use it in these instances of these state-sanctioned lynchings. And it's a whole different narrative to get you back in the historic place of that this wasn't an isolated incident. It really frames it and makes you look at that. It makes people uncomfortable. So I appreciate you using that. Liz, why in the world are you here? All right. So I am a sociologist and I study crime and social inequality. And so this is really at the intersections of crime and social inequality. Um, My personal research is on anti-LGBTQ hate violence. But we know that there are important intersections with crime and racial injustice as well. Do we know, Liz? We do, do we? know that. There is, <laughs> there is ample evidence that demonstrates that racial and ethnic minorities are not treated equally by the justice system. And I find it really appalling that Chief Durham cannot admit that. The fact that we have a police chief who can say that there are not racial injustices that occur in policing is really problematic. And part of what I do is use data to understand these inequalities, to show how they impact people's lives, and to use numbers to tell a story about the patterns that go on. So I got involved with this because um, I've been involved with some community organizing. Um, For example, I was involved with Southerners on New Ground and some of the things that they've been doing around the creating a civilian review board for the police, which hasn't really taken off yet. But this idea of civilian oversight of what are the police doing? Are they policing justly? Are they policing equally? When we look at crime data for the most part, and when we look for racial bias in policing, we usually find it. And so the fact that the Richmond Police Department won't won't release their data on traffic stops, when they won't release their data on Terry stops, what is it that you don't want us to know? Right. Chief Durham keeps saying that there are no problems with race and the Richmond Police Department. So give us the data to prove that. Right. Yeah, data is so important. And something else that was brought up in the meeting last night was somebody asked about the programs uh, that the public safety is doing and uh, Chief Durham and his programs in the community. And one of the questions were, what is the data for those type of evaluative numbers? Do you have any numbers to show that these programs are working? And what was, what was the, I wasn't there, so I'm trying not to speak on this, but I saw it in the video. But can you guys talk a little bit about what he said to that? He said, come down and see for yourself. His sense of these programs are working is that he's there, and so he believes they're working. <laughs> but that's not data. <laughs> So, and the idea that the data only came like yesterday is when the community asked for it. The community had to demand it in a way, and so it was up there very strategically on the day of the community meeting that the organizer was coming to. So my day job, I'm a performance manager ah. for a sales organization. I wish 
I wish that on my mid-year and year-end assessment, I could tell my manager, just come on down and see the results. Like, that's fine. <laughs> like, that works. Yeah, that's all you got to do. We're definitely doing the work, boss. So, Jess, I'll definitely give you a reason, uh, a chance to talk about your motivation of being there. Yeah, so I, uh, in 2016, I actually ran for school board of the district that I live in, the third district. And for me, when I was going through the process of that, I really realized, you know, for me, it doesn't matter as much who we actually elect if we're not holding those people accountable. And I think that a big reason that people don't hold people accountable is lack of access to officials. And part of it's just people don't understand. It's boring, all these different things. Or you can't find out when the meeting is. Right. And you can't be there all the time. And, you know, I have the advantage where I have cats are pretty self-sufficient children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm able to, to kind of have that lifestyle where I'm at a lot of meetings, depending, doesn't matter what time of night it is. Um, so for me, it's really about holding people accountable. But and that's all of the government meetings. So we live tweet city council, school board, do a lot of deep dive research because, you know, I have the time, but also I have the privilege to have the educational background to really understand some of these things and, and really dig in and ask some of these questions. And they don't impact me all the time, but they impact a lot of people who don't have the time and who don't have the privilege. And so I think people do need to be more involved and accountable. So we try to make it pretty easy. But for me specifically, I've been trying to make a point to really try to be at as many of the community meetings for Marcus David Peters as possible. And for me personally, it's because when I look at the picture of Marcus David Peters, it, it could be any one of my friends. It could be anyone that my friends have dated. It could be people that I've dated. It, it's really difficult to see, regardless of where they're at, when these things happen over and over and over again. But to know that we drive down 95 where this happened. To know that 95 was put there intentionally and decimated the black community in Jackson Ward and the intentionality of the capital of the Confederacy and everything that it is, I think it makes it that much harder because it really is your friend. It, it really is your sibling. It's whoever it want, you need it to be in that moment. So for me, I think that it's, it's always been a point of I don't care how tired I am. I don't care how many more things I have to be doing that day. I, I try to at least make it out for especially those meetings and put emphasis on it because it matters. Mm -hmm. And I think it matters for people to be able to go back and see those things because you're right. I, I didn't see media there. Right. And it's odd because I've seen media at other meetings. Out of the meetings where people have talked, this to me was one of the most important ones because of what ended up getting put out. This was not the first time I was at a district meeting or these community office hours where somebody asked Durham and Stoney about Marcus David Peters. The first one was actually in the second district. Somebody came out and asked a question and they were alone. It was only one person. They were sitting next to me and they asked the question. Stoney didn't say anything. Didn't have to. They put Durham on the spot and he said, trust the process. The investigation needs to be completed. And now you're in an oh, environment man. where fast forward a few weeks and People are not letting that answer stay. And now you're also not just putting Durham on the spot, but Stoney ha was forced, put in a position where he was forced, even though I think that he tried to sidestep it by quickly handing the mic over to Durham. <laughs> um, you know, he tried to get out of the way because he knows that at the end of the day, like people are looking at both of them. But Durham, people have a tendency to probably give him most of the flack. And he just couldn't avoid it. And so I think it was unfortunate that other media wasn't there because that is some of those sound bites. Yeah. Well, we are definitely going to share them on my Race Capital page. So please check that out and um, just continue to check out the Justice and Reformation page on Facebook for Marcus David Peters. And you can check out these sound bites that we're really talking about because this was 
a really a, a type of meeting that unveiled, unearthed a lot of these same racist narratives that we've seen throughout history. And it's right here in our Richmond capital. And if we don't hold these elected officials accountable, then when it comes down for it happening to a family member or someone else that we love, then we're going to be asking for the community for the same type of support. And so it's important to go out and reach out and follow what's going on to really be able to do your part and support your neighbor. Because like Jess said, it could be anybody. Um, I really want to thank RVA Dirt for everything that you guys do and coming out and you just spoke all the freaking inclusive words, right? That you have privilege, you have the time, you have the education. So you really spoke truth to power for that. And I appreciate you doing that. I appreciate Liz and Ulysses for taking the time out for you guys to come and just share your voice right here so we can amplify it as much as we can. And just being very honest about where you are. Many people that are in these positions may not want to know, may not may not talk about where they work. They don't have that privilege or that access. So this just happened yesterday. We hit up everybody this morning and you guys came right on. So I really appreciate that. That shows so much commitment to the family and to this city, really. Big shout out to Princess Blanding. The way that she stood up in that meeting yesterday was just like, woman, you are so strong for doing this and was did not back down. She really is the rock to keeping the organizers going and pushing this narrative forward. So big shout out to her. And in case you don't know, she does not even live in Richmond. She travels just to make this really known for our city. And LeVar Stoney is not her mayor, but she wants to make this place better for us as well, for her brother and how we are spending our time as well. So I want to ask this last closing remarks and just anything else that stuck out from this meeting, because for me, this was just such an important narrative of who are our leaders and who do you protect? Who do you serve? Right. Uh, I'd like to share an anecdote. Um, yeah. This was before the meeting and everything, but it it was after uh it wasn't after it was after some sort of meeting that the family had put together, and um I had t- I had taken some flyers that they were giving out to you know disperse, and I, I remember going into like a uh, it was a brewery next to uh next to Starbucks. I forget where it was. It was on a uh, What's that road? It's like half of Richmond. I was just yeah. saying, yeah. which brewery? <laughs> Not very, uh, it's pretty vague. But I-, I went in and I was like, hey, you know, could I uh, hang this flyer in here? And he-, and he looked at it and he said, no, sorry, we don't do political things. You know, no political flyers. And I-, I think it's, you know, astounding that we consider, you know, the death of, like, a- the death of a person something that we politicize. You know what I mean? Like, this, this isn't, it's not politics to be advocating for the justice of, a man who had his life taken from him. You know, like it's not it's not political when people die. That's that's just a matter of, you know, basic humanity. And that was not the only instance in which people turned me down because, you know, they don't do political things. So that like that stuck out with me. Like there it was that place and um I think another corner store and I think a, a gas station that all said, you know, no political ads. It's it's tragic, really. Yeah, and it's one of those ways that they get to detach. Right. Because I'm not a political person. I don't I don't do politics. So they get to detach very easily with that. So just to kind of wrap up that meeting, a lot of dynamics. The meeting was about two hours long. The Facebook live feed is there. Um, You can kind of follow along there. There's a lot of good stuff that happens. But Jess, you mentioned that a lot of times they bring out like the the top people there. Did we ever talk about the councilman that was there? Wait, was the councilman there? Yeah. And he didn't say a thing. Yeah. Not a thing? No. He, he was like, he just ghosted us. Like, 
I, I, I think he might have left. I mean, maybe like because my eyes weren't on him because he wasn't speaking, but he was, you just he, like he was threw there a smoke bomb and was he gone. He was there the whole time. That's so interesting. <laughs> so I think it, it's especially interesting because there was another community meeting where the one that the mayor and Durham didn't show up to, that ninth district councilman Mike Jones did show up. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And on the you know, June thirtieth, he made some comments, and while I, I don't agree with all of his comments, and he got I think some criticism. I think what also is interesting about this meeting is that there was another councilman here, fifth district councilman Parker Agilasto. He was there the entire time. I talked to him afterward. Can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't fully ghost um and you know he's one of probably out of all of them right now like i i really enjoy parker yeah um he, he really does a lot of different things that are different and actually does try to do all the research like, there's a lot of positive things i could say but not only was his voice absent but i think our criticism was absent right and i i noticed that myself i didn't even didn't register until i got home i'm like wait a minute <laughs> Like, did I not get critical of the fact that Parker said nothing? Nothing. You know, because people were quick to get critical about what Mike did say. Right, right. You know, I think that it's something of just like self-reflective moments of, you know, Princess went to city council and all nine of them said nothing. Said nothing, yes. Didn't acknowledge her there. And Mike went and he did apologize to her for that in that meeting. And fast forward, you know, only one out of nine has said something. Right. Is that silence violence? Because we politicized his death. like. It's mm. they they think it's dangerous to advocate for justice of a dead man because Oof. people politicize it. Oof. And it's dangerous to advocate for justice. Yeah. yeah. Politically it's dangerous because you know, there's a lot of people who don't think just I guess there's a lot of people just don't think. <laughs> yeah, right. That's <laughs> I think a, that's it's important point. to kind of finish the sentence that you're kind of going there is like it's dangerous to them in their careers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's dangerous and it hurts them instead of looking at, you know, the big picture of all of us and it's self-serving politics when politics and politicians should serve us because changing things means that they're doing something wrong now Mm. right if you make change then you're admitting that there was something wrong in the first place and that is a dangerous position for a politician to take that's a dangerous position for the chief of police to take to say we did it wrong Mm -hmm. and we're going to do better it's dangerous that the leader of the second largest armed force in the state of Virginia, second only to the National Guard, doesn't think there's an issue with state-sanctioned violence against black and brown people. That is simply dangerous. Like, if he doesn't think that's a reality, then that's a reality that's certainly happening here, and we've seen it. So I had one more thought, and one of the things that I didn't hear last night was we got a lot of trust the process, trust the process, we'll discuss this when the investigation is complete. But there's no indication of when that investigation will be complete. And I understand that you need time to investigate and that you want to do a thorough investigation and things like that. But we look at the complaint data that's on the RPD website. There are civilian complaints that were opened in January 2017 that at the close of 2017 were still open. So how long is this process going to take? Right. And how are we going to move the conversation forward if we can't discuss it until the investigation is closed and we have no close date? And that was another big question that came out yesterday was, why do you have to wait? What's going on? What's taking so long? It's been two months. The community had some great questions, guys. So making sure that you guys go back to this feed and taking a look at it. We're putting a lot of slack and giving a lot of pressure to Chief Durham, but he works for the mayor. And LeVar Stoney stood there next to him 
as the chief of police denied the systemic racism that's going on in our country. Yeah, we're all conditioned to this type of thought and this process. All right. Well, that is going to wrap up the interview. And I want to just thank my guests for being here. Before we go, I just want to also give last um, shout outs of anything that's going on um, in your world that you just want to elevate. Uh, so the YDSA at VCU, uh, I recently started uh, what we're calling like the, the public garage, the Richmond public garage. Basically how this works is, um, you know, a large part of being working class is being able to get the work. And if your car is broken down, you can't get the work. I've seen that happen in my family. It's happened to myself. It's, it's a common thing that people often overlook that is, is one of the things that, you know, hold people down in poverty is fixing their cars. So basically, we started this garage, and the way it works is all you have to do is cover the cost of the parts, and we'll fix your car if we can. I'm the one doing all the repairs right now. I'm the only mechanic that we have. Uh, generally, I know older uh, domestic cars better, but I'll take anything you have to offer. Um, a good way to contact us is... Uh, uh, vcuyds at gmail.com or uh, ithacasulysses at gmail.com so yeah please reach out if you, you or any co-workers are in a financial hardship and can't get the work you know struggling with the car thank you for doing that Ulysses anyone else come to city council meetings yes so that's a lot uh, that's just the tip I hope you come back and chat with me and how in the world we're going to do this as a community we have to confront our systems together by taking the daily challenge of how you and me plan to use our privilege due to the roots of white supremacy to disrupt our still prevalent racist narrative frame, keeping our institutions and those good people working in them hostage. Restorative justice is a mass effort by our community and every voice must engage. To hear more, follow me at Race Capital on all social media platforms. And Capital is with an O. Have a great one. And until next time, check your lens. And thanks for listening to Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs Wise.